Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. And thank you for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. It's a Politics Day edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm John Wanamaker, sitting in for Ben Kiefer. We're talking about some of the more notable legislation that made it through the legislature's first funnel week, including a measure concerning the practice of one's religion. You just heard from our reporter, Grant Gerlach, about that. Joining me to talk about these stories and more are political scientist Megan Goldberg of Cornell College and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. And you can join the conversation at 866-780-9100, or you can email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Jonathan, Megan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. First off, I'd like to start with a disclaimer. I am relatively new to the Iowa political landscape, having moved here from Minnesota in October, and I, I haven't swum in the deep end of state politics. I'd, in fact, I'd like to say I'm still kind of paddling around with my pool floaties on, metaphorically speaking, so bear with me. But uh, first off, I'd like to talk to you, Megan. In January, Governor Kim Reynolds laid out her legislative agenda in her condition of the state address. Give me quickly a percentage number, how much of that framework remains after the first funnel week? Oh, that, you know what? That's a specific question. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm trying to calculate. Um, just so just, a, just that, off the cuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that I'm going to do a sort of a relative uh, a comparison here. I think that um, things are still going fairly well after uh, sort of where things stand in terms of the agenda she laid out. Uh, I think we've seen some unsuccessful years for the governor in terms of getting her agenda through. Um, but I do think there were there were quite a few things in if you sort of watch the Democratic reaction, the minority party's reaction to the condition of the state, there were some things that they could sort of get behind, especially including like higher teacher pay. Um, but of course, you know, there's been a lot of attention on the status of the area education agencies um, and some of the other education policies that I think are still now sort of uh, in play after uh, after the funnel. And so uh, I would still say like this is a in terms of accomplishing what she wants, uh, Reynolds is still sort of in like a good status. I would be happy if I were her looking at my success, I think. Definitely. Well, as we just heard, Republicans in the Iowa Senate have passed a bill that they, they say is meant to guard against government interference in the exercise of religion. And the legislation says state and local governments shall not substantially burden someone's exercise of religion unless they have a compelling interest. And uh, Democrats who are opposed to this bill say it's a blank check for discrimination. First off, Megan, explain to me or to us, I should say, why they might feel this way. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think some of the comments by um, State Senator Liz Bennett are sort of helpful clarifications here. Uh, of course, uh, Bennett is one of the first LGBTQ members of the Iowa State Legislature. Um, and she is sort of has pointed out um, just sort of telling her own story about the ways in which she can see this happening. And I think this is especially true for LGBTQ individuals that there's concern that many different businesses um, and individuals could discriminate against hiring, housing, um, serving LGBTQ individuals on the basis of uh, arguing that it prohibits the religious practice. So this is sort of an extension of a long standing national controversy going back to, you know, sort of like the, the canonical wedding cake uh, case that happened, oh gosh, at this point, like over a decade ago. Um, 
where of course there's been controversy over bakers and website designers and all sorts of vendors, whether or not they have to uh, serve couples who are um, same sex. And the concern here that Democrats have is that this could extend to other circumstances where perhaps religious entities might not hire a member of the LGBTQ community um, or, you know, rent them or sell them a house. And, and so you could sort of imagine and that's sort of where they're coming from in terms of how this might create discrimination. Jonathan, this legislation mirrors the uh, Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And uh, I'm thinking specifically of the Hobby Lobby case, but how has this type of legislation played out across the country? Uh, apparently about a dozen states have similar legislation. As you said, this was also, there's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act signed uh, in the Bill Clinton administration, so way back when. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it does seem to be gaining a little bit of uh, momentum as it moves from state to state. Uh, but, you know, I can't imagine that this is going to be something that's going to be spreading to, you know, California or New York, right? This is probably going to be uh, restricted to the state, you know, to more red states. Definitely. Well, the uh, going on to, to another topic, the Iowa Senate voted yesterday to repeal a law that requires state and local boards and commissions to have an equal or nearly equal number of men and women. And supporters of rolling back this law say it's insulting to be asked to serve on a board just because of one gender. In fact, they say that the law currently keeps qualified women from seats that must be held by men. And we heard uh, from Democratic Senator Sarah Trongariat that the, the law currently ensures better representation in state government. Uh, what could come of this law being taken off the books, Megan? You know, so I think that that's sort of an argument you hear a lot, sort of the reverse is that it will actually keep off qualified members of groups who are historically underrepresented. And so I think to Trone Garriott's comments, women are historically underrepresented in almost any sort of political office, whether that's sort of an appointed one or an elected one. And so realistically, gender balance requirements increase the number of women. They don't often decrease them. Um, and women behave differently than men do uh, often in in political processes. Um, and so you could see also downstream effects of um, just fewer women in office or fewer women sort of holding these positions. Um, and they might have different interests than men. Um, and sometimes women also tend to, because of the way sort of women get socialized into um, these sorts of positions and into life in general, um, they bring often different tactics to the table when it's like engaging in group work, essentially. Um, and so you'll sort of be missing that element, too. Um, they tend to be more inclusive and democratic in their decision making. Um, and this is all from research on sort of looking at the behavior of women in political offices. Um, and so you just get substantially different policies and processes when women are involved. So that's where you could see an impact. Jonathan, laws governing gender balance, affirmative action, and DEI are under pressure across the country. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is it reductive to say that we should live in a merit-based society, that the best person for the job should get that job? And does that argument take into account our current reality? Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, in theory, it's, it's of course, it's great to say we live in a meritocracy, you know, that the best people should get whatever job. Uh, the problem is, is that there are systemic barriers for certain populations in the United States that just make it more difficult for them to succeed. Um, you know, there are uh, educational disparities, there are wealth disparities, there are income disparities, many of which <clears throat> date back to, you know, the, the slavery era or before. 
um, that are just going to make it difficult for you know equally talented people to go through the system and, and receive a proper education and, and uh, you know be able to exercise all their civic rights and duties. And so in that sense. Yeah, like it's 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 very American to say that the best person should get the job, but we, we, we shouldn't ignore the fact that the system is not set up on a level playing field, that, that the table is tilted towards certain people in certain sectors of the economy in a way that is fundamentally unfair. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in the IPR newsroom, we get a lot of, and this is, I'm, I'm moving on to another uh, bill that is currently being discussed or moving to the floor. And in, in the IPR newsroom, we get a lot of emails from State Auditor Rob Sand about investigations that his office has conducted. And in many cases, those investigations have revealed the mishandling of funds or failure to follow protocol. But uh, Sand is accusing the State Board of Parole of withholding documents. And that agency <clears throat> retorted by citing a law that passed last session. And this week, the Senate passed a law that would allow state agencies to bypass Sand's office and instead choose private CPA firms to conduct those audits. The uh, bill's sponsor, Republican Senator Michael Buslow of Ankeny, says the bill is just meant to give state agencies the same option that local governments have. But speaking at a news conference last week, Sand disagreed. These insiders want a state auditor who is a lapdog, not a watchdog. Anyone can see it. They are so desperate to explain away the obvious purpose of this new legislation that they held up Illinois as an example for government accountability. Illinois, where four of their last 10 governors have gone to prison. And uh, Sand is arguing that uh, the government is looking for not a a watchdog, but a lapdog. Megan, Buslow is arguing that this is not a political move, but... We can't lose sight of the fact that Sand is the only Democrat in state elected office, right? Yeah, you know, so I think the context makes this really important. Not only is Sand the only statewide Democrat in office, um, but we've also heard comments sort of, and I think sometimes there are slips even perhaps by the governor, uh, sort of like talking about Sand's opponents at the time as, we'll have our own auditor um, or I'll have my own auditor. And that's like that's not exactly... Um, the phrasing you might want to use if you think of an auditor as sort of this accountability uh, measure. And so, you know, I think that you can sort of isolate this and look at it in a vacuum and you could maybe make a contact or make an argument that, um, you know, this is exactly all the things they say it is, uh, that Republicans who support it say it is. But I think in the broader context, Sand has a good point and uh, the sort of Democratic detractors have a good point about the actual goal of this bill. Uh, Jonathan, does this uh, move maybe just reflect the current political reality in the state that uh, Democrats are in a very much in the minority? Sure. And as Megan said, you know, Sand is the only statewide elected Democrat. We had a, a long-serving Democratic attorney general who lost in the last round. And so, you know, Sand is basically all that's left uh, for Democrats at the state level. And, uh, you know, the idea that it, it's going to help more accountability to have to bring in more auditing, private auditing agencies that's, that, that, you know, county governments then have to pay for, I mean, it's ludicrous. I'm um, shocked that Senator Busolo could get through saying uh, what he was saying with a straight face. Uh, the, I mean, you know, it's it's it is helpful in a democracy to have adversarial auditors, right? You know, ideally, I think if we would have, we would have auditors from the opposite party from all 50 states, uh, you know, they're going to be a lot like more likely to catch uh, malfeasance and the like than those that are uh, cozy with the existing power structure. 
We'll have to keep an eye on uh, what's going to happen in uh, this case of Rob Sand and that legislation. And coming up, we're going to be talking about proposed changes to uh, Iowa's uh, voting laws. And also, we'll give, move to the presidential race and the stakes for Nikki Haley ahead of the primary in her home state of South Carolina. My guests this hour are Megan Goldberg, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College, and Jonathan Hasid, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. And we'll get back to that conversation, and you can join in. We'll get back to you in just a couple of minutes. I'm John Wanamaker. It's River to River on IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm John Wanamaker sitting in for Ben Kiefer talking about the week's political news with Megan Goldberg of Cornell College and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. You can join the conversation. We'd especially like to know your thoughts on what role the U.S. should be playing in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. The number to call, 866-780-9100, or you can email River to River at iowapublicradio.org. And I'd like to get back to a little bit of a legislation going on here in the state. Iowa Republican lawmakers are proposing numerous changes to the state's voting laws, including getting rid of ballot drop boxes and placing new conditions on absentee voters. Jonathan, how does this re- legislation reflect what's going on at the national level? And also telling, tell us about an element in this legislation that pertains to former President Donald Trump. Yes, it clearly reflects very much what's going on at the national level, uh, which is, of course, the uh, Republican supposed concern for ballot integrity. Um, In this case, the legislation would do a number of things, as you said. It would ban drop boxes. Uh, Drop boxes are not linked to any kind of increase in election fraud. And so there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that eliminating drop boxes would make elections more secure, especially because under current Iowa law, every county is only allowed to have one, which is monitored heavily by security cameras. Um, So eliminating it is is not going to help the ballot security. Uh, The the thing that really gives the whole game away is uh, the fact that the legislation will remove, will allow, for the first time, convicted felons to appear on Iowa's ballot. Uh, currently, candidates have to self-certify to be on the ballot, saying that, among other things, they have not been convicted of a felony. This would eliminate that, um, and with a clear aim toward uh, toward Donald Trump. Uh, the idea being, of course, is that if he's convicted in one of his criminal trials, and uh, he, he, under current Iowa law, he would then be ineligible to be a candidate. This will eliminate that. It also, the law also makes it harder for ordinary Iowans to challenge candidate eligibility. Uh, instead, candidate eligibility decisions will now be made at um, uh, basically by a board, of the, you know, a, a government board rather than 
more individual people bringing challenges. And, and so the whole idea is to essentially hobble anyone who would want to challenge Donald Trump's presidency. And the idea that a, a bill promoting voting integrity, I mean, I, I'm not sure what allowing felons on the, the ballot will do for increasing voting integrity. It seems to me a deeply cynical and preposterous move. Well, currently, Donald Trump, uh, we should point out, has not been convicted of a felony, but uh, there are challenges to his candidacy and his uh, being on the ballot, including in Colorado. We're still awaiting a Supreme Court decision on that. Jonathan, how do you think that's going to uh, turn out? Oh, that's difficult to say. It looks like the consensus based on based on the questions that the justices gave during oral arguments and the like, the consensus really seems to be that um, there's going to be uh, Donald Trump will not be found ineligible under the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the Constitution, according to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. That, that's certainly the way that oral arguments seem like they were looking. Even the sort of more um, left-leaning or Democratic-appointed justices uh, seemed relatively skeptical about uh, the moves to take Donald Trump off the ballot because of the you know the attempted coup that he had on January 6th. And so it seems to me that the Supreme Court is going to punt. They're going to, you know, uh, come up with some way that uh, they can dismiss the case without uh, actually pulling Trump off the ballot or perhaps um, uh, getting themselves involved in more political hot water. So you're predicting a fairly narrow decision. I am. I'm predicting a narrow decision in Trump's favor. Yep. Yep. Well, let's let's continue with the presidential race. And we have to talk about GOP candidate Nikki Haley. And despite Trump's commanding lead and low polling numbers in her home state, Haley, the former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador, has vowed to stay in the race. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. Far from it. I'm running for president because we have a country to save. Since the start of my campaign, I've been focused on the real issues our country faces, the ones that determine whether America will thrive or spiral out. That's why I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. Well, Jonathan, uh, Haley sounding very defiant here, but I, I have to wonder, what is the strategy? And, and is she counting on Donald Trump's ongoing legal problems to trip him up? And uh, I guess more cynically, are there powerful donors urging her to stay in the race? There are. She seems to have plenty of money now. And in fact, there are. Uh, there was an interesting story, I think it was in Politico the other day, about a number of top Biden donors now giving money to Haley. So obviously, you know, for supporters of President, at least some well-heeled supporters of President Biden, funding Nikki Haley potentially is a way to damage Donald Trump. Uh, as for her as for her strategy, yeah, I, it's hard to say. I mean, she clearly doesn't really have a viable way forward to get the Republican nomination for president, unless, of course, uh, Donald Trump is convicted of a felony, or there's some sort of health accident or emergency or something like that. Of course, uh, both the president and his chief opponent are, in, are quite old. Uh, and so I suspect that Nikki Haley, as long as she can get funded, will just sort of hang on and be a gadfly and sort of wait for opportunity to develop. But realistically, it's not likely to happen for her, as, as I'm sure she's well aware. You know, if she, she's, she's not going to win South Carolina. I doubt she'll win you know, any state outright, um, Trump is going to pick up them all. And so, um, you know, if there's a normal election cycle. And so, yeah, Haley's strategy is, is a little bit confusing. Like if she actually wants to be president, if she's in this to win, I don't know what she's doing because she doesn't really have a way forward. So it's, you know, a barring unforeseen circumstances. 
Megan, leading into the Iowa caucuses, uh, Haley supporters said, just win or lose, that they probably were not going to vote for Donald Trump. How would you characterize her chances in Iowa in the general election? Have they improved since the caucuses, worsened or stayed the same? I mean, I, I don't know that I would say they've gotten better. I would I would say, you know, you can get your sort of better chances over time if you sort of seem to be picking up steam. And even though she's still in the race and is sort of this like last woman standing against Trump, um, her numbers haven't improved that much. Um, and so I think that, you know, for, for folks who want an option to Trump, she's very viable and looks like an attractive option. I think that she could possibly, you know, there could be some uh, moderate Democrats that would vote for Haley over Biden. That's a possibility. Um, But, you know, I think that Jonathan's sort of analysis there is really um, exactly what I would say is I, I don't think she has a strong chance in Iowa. And it's not entirely clear to me what she's doing. And I think that lack of clarity over sort of like hanging on when the race is not hers to win anymore, um, and maybe never was, that it sort of confuses people, uh, especially people who are you know paying quite a bit of attention and trying to like assess. It doesn't make you look like a good candidate when, or a strong candidate or a wise one, um, when you stay in a race that's not winnable. What sort of institutional support does she have in the state, though? She was not uh, endorsed by any major players. Yeah, so I think there were a few sort of lower level Republicans um, who were sort of, if they weren't like full endorsements, um, were showing up at Haley events and a few were sort of interviewed. Um, but I think, you know, as things shift, um, you know, if, if she were in the case that Trump is somehow ineligible for office or is no longer running, and if, if by some like slim shot miracle, Haley became the nominee, it, it doesn't matter if she doesn't have uh, institutional support now, I think the party institutionally will pivot to support whoever is the nominee, even if they're not thrilled about it. Um, and so, you know, I don't think she is necessarily going to convince anyone on her own. Um, but if she starts to pick up steam elsewhere, you know, I think you could see some pivoting in Iowa. But again, I don't think she's going to pick up steam anywhere, um, including South Carolina. Let's take a pivot to international events. The United States on Tuesday vetoed an Arab-backed and widely supported U.N. resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in the Gaza Strip. And they say it would interfere with negotiations on a deal to free hostages abducted in Israel. Jonathan, President Biden has been walking a very fine line on the war in Gaza. Can you see a scenario where he comes out looking good? Well, I, I don't know that anyone comes out looking good from the war. Um, y- I mean, Biden's problem, as you say, is that he has to he's got to toe this very narrow line. So on the one hand, there are, you know, quite a few American Jews who in general are um, more left leaning and supportive of the Democratic Party. And so, you know, Biden is not going to want to upset those voters, uh, especially, you know, in in sort of uh, electorally crucial states like New York or California uh, for Democrats. But, of course, he's also at the same time, the fact that the U.S. is doing things like vetoing uh, resolutions for an immediate ceasefire is certainly not helping his standing among uh, Arab Americans who are uh, quite prominently represented, for example, in, in Michigan, a key, uh, key swing state. Um, and, you know, Biden seems to have been, I mean, apparent, apparently, he's, you know, he's losing quite a bit of support among previously left-leaning Arab Americans who are frustrated with the sort of Biden administration's approach to Israel. And so, you know, essentially, if he, you know, it's very difficult for him, right? If he, if he, if he leans one way, he's gonna, he's gonna upset the other side, and and 
Um, that's going to happen no matter what he does. At, at the same time, you know, it's not it's not unusual, I should I should say, for the U.S. to veto legislations aimed at sort of restraining Israel. The, the U.S. has been doing this for for decades, and so in that sense, the the veto is not particularly unusual. But the timing of it, of course, uh, makes the issue much more salient. And so already we have uh, Congress people like Rashida Tlaib uh, of, of uh, Democrat of Michigan who's saying. When you vote in the primary, a vote undecided. Don't don't pick Biden. Uh, vote undecided uh, as a way to express dissatisfaction. I think the, the word they used was non-committed. Non-committed, but, yeah. non-committed, exactly. Yeah, and so, you know, this. I mean, sure, it could definitely, it could definitely hurt him either way. Megan, uh, Biden has been taking a lot of heat from the progressive wing of his party, as mentioned. Uh, how do you think this is going to affect uh, the upcoming election? Yeah, you know, um, I think all of what has been already said is is, is spot on, um, and that's sort of the challenge of having a sort of broad tent or big tent party is that it can be hard to keep the coalition together. Um, I think thinking about the sort of left leaning uh, faction of the party, um, what you really have to be worried about if you are really any Democrat running right now. Um, is young people's growing frustration. They tend to be some of the most liberal members of the Democratic Party. It's already hard to get them to show up. Um, but over the past you know, few elections, the political activity of people under the age of 30 has been really crucial to a lot of electoral success in the Democratic Party. Um, and so they're some of the ones, I think, those are some of the voters or potential voters who are most frustrated with the Biden administration right now. And it comes not just about this particular issue, but there's also other issues like student loan forgiveness um, that are and climate change that are all sort of weighing heavily on those young voters. And uh, the danger is not that they're going to necessarily go out and vote for Trump in the general election, but that they're not going to vote at all because they feel like they have very little efficacy in the electoral system. And so I think that's one of the challenges is the Biden administration sort of has to figure out how to motivate that part of the party to show up. And it might be sometimes different policy strategies. And uh, we'd like to uh, go to a caller, Frederick from El Cater. Uh, you have an opinion about uh, support for Israel. Correct. Thank you for taking my call. I just, um, I, was, I was following the, the vote yesterday on, uh, at the United Nation, and I, I find it, despicable that the representative of my government um, voted against that resolution brought by Algeria. I, I, am a US, I am a U.S. citizen. I am a taxpayer. I work really hard for my money, and I'm, I gladly pay my taxes. I object to them being used to, uh, to commit blatant crimes against humanity on the other side of the world in Palestine, Israel. Uh, I, I object to, for, to, to my government giving Israel a blank check. No, no, we, we, we have plenty of countries around the world. Uh, it seems like there is this one country that we, we give a blank, blank check to without any questions asked, and I, I, I have a big problem with that. All right. Thank you. That's Frederick. And uh, Jonathan, what do you think of what he had to say? I think that, uh, again, we're talking about the line that the president has to walk between uh, support for Israel and the, and the very accompanying lobby and then also uh, the reality of what's going on in Gaza. 
I mean, you know, one reality is that the U.S. and Israel, of course, have been allies for a very long time. Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, in spite of the fact that it's it's quite a wealthy country. Um, and, you know, support for Israel historically has been quite bipartisan, right? In addition to historical Democratic support for Israel, we also have a lot of Republican support for Israel, especially among evangelical Christians who, for various reasons, um, feel affinity for the, for the Israeli government. Um, and so in that sense, it's it's difficult. Like, it's politically hard to sort of cut Israel off, even if that were the, the nationally popular move, um, because of history, because of inertia, because of these t- ties between the U.S. and Israeli militaries and societies. And so, you know, uh, Frederick the Caller, I, th- I mean, he's, he's not wrong in the sense that the U.S. does sort of give Israel an unusual amount of latitude and an unusual amount of support in the foreign arena. That's not only, though, for international reasons. It's also for American domestic politics, which it seems to me perhaps are shifting, but are are not, you know, haven't 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 immediately flipped to some kind of anti-Israeli position, right? There's still there's still large blocks of the American public that are pro-Israel, have been for a very long time, undoubtedly will be for a long time, uh, and so, you know. Biden doesn't want to alienate them, uh, and, and of course he also doesn't want to alienate callers like Frederick. It's it's a it's a difficult job, difficult job. In the uh, situation, I'm going to pose this to you, Megan, real quickly. The situation in Gaza has drawn some attention from the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And USA to Ukraine has been tied to the dispute over what's happening on the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, Governor Governor Kim Reynolds has uh, uh, weighed in on that. Uh, Where do we stand, do you think, on aid to Ukraine? Yeah, you know, so I think that this has become an issue uh, that rapidly did become polarized, that two years ago... um, you know, there was bipartisan agreement for the most part that, uh, you know, the U.S. should come to the aid of Ukraine in some way or another. Um, but of course, we've seen it, and Trump has played no small part in this, um, that now most Republicans um, are very critical of aid to Ukraine, sort of wanting more transparency and how that's spent. Um, and, and I think that's related to the fact that Trump has cozied up to to the Russian government um, in many different ways and in different interviews. Um, and so, you know, I think that one of the things that we'll see increasingly, too, is that Republicans right now are much more unified on the issue of what aid the U.S. should be giving to Israel and perhaps use that as a bargaining chip um, that they can sort of show that as a party, the Republicans are delivering aid to Israel, this ally, and they could be doing that in exchange for also agreeing to aid to Ukraine, which not as many people sort of just like on the ground, the regular citizens have strong opinions about. Real quickly, yes or no, do you think that uh, that uh, the Biden administration can, su- can successfully disengage aid to Ukraine from uh, action on the Mexico border? Uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that I think that what now that, that that's sort of like those two issues are linked in the bargaining. I think it's going to be really difficult uh, for the Biden administration or Democrats to sort of disentangle those two things unless they can come up with a different bargaining chip. And I don't know if there's one they're willing to sort of put on the table. That's Megan Goldberg of Cornell College and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. Still to come, we'll take a look at a case from Alabama that affects invertebrate fertilization. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I'm John Wanamaker, and it's River to River Politics Wednesday on IPR News.
Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm John Wanamaker in for Ben Kiefer. We're talking politics today with Megan Goldberg of Cornell College and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation at 866 780 9100, or you can email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. And guys, before we get to that Alabama court case, wanted to stay on the international stage for a moment. Former President Donald Trump has sparked international alarm with comments this month that he would encourage Russia to attack NATO member states who have not met their defense spending commitments, and he's long threatened to exit the alliance. Jonathan, does Trump's rhetoric expose the lack of power Congress has in protecting America's commitments to the NATO alliance? It absolutely does. You know, Congress, once, once uh, you know, a treaty is signed, then foreign affairs are or ratified, I should say, then foreign affairs are essentially the exclusive domain of the president. And so it's really, really difficult for Congress, even a Congress that had a lot more institutional power than the Congress currently does, uh, to restrain a president from doing things like pulling out of treaties. As it happens, it's almost dead letter law. The, the Constitution requires the Senate to approve all treaties by a two-thirds vote. Since Obama came to office, uh, administrations are essentially no longer submitting treaties to Congress for ratification. They're just trying to go around this whole ratification process. Um, and, you know, it's just another sort of sad example of the decline of Congress's institutional prerogatives and powers that it has really ceded to the presidency over the last, you know, 80, 80 years or more. Megan, uh, Republicans have been uh, dismissive of Trump's comments regarding NATO. In fact, they, they say this is just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. He's always been antagonistic toward NATO and people not uh, paying their fair, what he says is their fair share. Uh, how seriously, as a presumptive Republican nominee, though, how seriously should Americans be taking this? I mean, I think it, to some degree, you can sort of say it's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, if he becomes president, he's not just Donald Trump. He's the president. Uh, and things that the president says have weight and they have policy consequences. Um, and, you know, at the very least, uh, granted, right, like, keep in mind, I'm not a scholar of international relations and diplomacy and security studies. But it seems to me that having a president who's sort of making these off the cuff comments um, just puts so much uncertainty onto the international stage and uh, makes the U.S. look like an unreliable or unpredictable partner to any allies. And I think that's not a position of, of power uh, in many ways. That, and, so, and so you can see, even if it's just comments, um, and that it's still, they could still have consequences um, with how much um, other, other nations sort of think that the U.S. is an important or... Uh, influential player sort of in the international stage. Okay, I, I have to get to this court case because I find it uh, fascinating. This week, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. That's a decision critics said could have sweeping implications for fertility treatment in the state. And that decision issued in a pair of wrongful death cases brought by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. And the justice cited anti-abortion language in the Alabama Constitution uh, this ruling could have a profound effect on in vitro fertility treatments in that state. And, uh, Megan, this, this brings us back to Iowa's so-called heartbeat law. You know, they're, they're tangentially related. 
that law would ban most abortions as soon as uh, embryonic uh, cardiac activity is detected. That's about six weeks after gestation. The law currently on hold, but uh, last week the Iowa Board of Medicine has approved administrative rules to enact the state's six-week abortion ban. And should the courts allow that uh, law, of course, to go into effect, what do you? What is your feeling uh, as to how the court might rule? Um, you know, so thinking about the Iowa case, um, you know, our own courts, I think, have in the past, right, of course, uh, was it, oh gosh, was it just last year? It feels like a long time ago. Um, Reynolds was sort of asking for the courts to... Um, to lift injunctions on previously passed legislation. And of course, the courts the courts refused to do so, sort of arguing that those were different people who were elected by a different electorate and um, tossed it back to the legislature. And um, I, was, I was frankly like somewhat surprised at the time by the ruling. Um, and I think that this is a much more, I, I think that as we've already heard it put earlier, the court punted a little bit and gave the decision to somebody else. Um, and now that's not really as much of an option uh, to, to potentially do. But I think, you know, in the, in the world of Dobbs, um, in the post-Dobbs world, that my guess is that the, my guess is that the court probably um, will not prevent the law from going into place in Iowa. Um, I, I don't know that that's like the long-term future. And I think that there's probably just going, we're going to be stuck in a very long sort of repeated cycle of court cases because just, you know, it might be challenged again later under some different uh, circumstances or, you know, to sort of poke at the law um, from the side of groups advocating for reproductive rights, sort of poke at the law as much as you can until, you know, eventually maybe you get some traction. And uh, uh, Donald Trump has hinted that he might support a 16-week abortion ban. Uh, is is that another maybe off-the-cuff uh, segment to appease certain uh, certain constituencies, or should we take that seriously, Megan? Um, you know, so I think that his uh, Trump's specific policy preferences can sort of careen from one place to another over the course of a campaign. Um, but I think that it does sort of echo a few other comments Trump has made indicating that he is not really his focus in in previous elections was i can put a pro life justice onto the court and get you know sort of these evangelical voters of the religious right what they want um and so i think a he's focused on pointing out that he delivered on that promise um but that he's never been really the the um anti-abortion candidate that evangelicals would potentially want um, because he's not a particularly religiously conservative person or um, politician in, in that way. And so I'm not surprised that he's sort of putting this much sort of later, uh, drawing this much later line that is a more moderate position than most Republicans. And I, I don't think he's necessarily, unless it's electorally good for him, I don't know that he'd move that line. And Jonathan, let's get back to this Alabama case. There are some legal experts that say that this case and the decision could have a more sweeping effect in that 21 states currently have laws mandating insurance coverage for in vitro fertilization. I was not one of them, but going back to the proposed Religious Freedom Act, is it conceivable that coverage could be denied because of disposing of an embryo might be considered a wrongful death? 
certainly in Alabama, that's that seems to be the yeah. case now. Um, so, yes, I mean, it raises all kinds of questions. You know, if, if, if this blastocyst of this group of cells is a person, can we keep them in the freezer? You know, all of these embryos are kept in a freezer. Is it, can we keep kids in freezers? I mean, if, if the embryos are kids, what about genetic testing on them? You know, what if you transfer an embryo to a woman and it does it not, it's unsuccessful? Is that a, you know, is that a murder? Um, this is, it opens up all kinds of uh, really astonishing legal questions. The, the thing that really struck out at me about this particular decision was the concurrence of the, the concurring opinion of the Chief Justice, who goes on and on about how God made every person in his image. And human life, he says, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of holy God, who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. This um, you know, is a blatant violation of the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, you know, the, the, the simple fact is, is that not everyone in America or even in Alabama believes in the same God that he does. And the idea that, like, we're taking, um, you know, uh, legislative views from the Bible is, is really quite horrifying. I will also notice that, um, that uh, the death penalty somehow is excluded from this, uh, from being made in God's image in Alabama somehow. Uh, but, you know, it, it, I mean, there's a whole can of worms here. I mean, are people going to take out life insurance policies on their frozen embryos? Can they do tax deductions on their frozen embryos? Can they drive in, you know, express lanes with their with the embryos? I mean, it's it's, it's just, who knows? Who knows where any of this is going? Yeah, it should be noted that uh, in IVF, they produce more embryos net than than needed in many cases. And, and, and you're right. What do they do with this? So do you expect, as you mentioned, the Establishment Clause, do you expect that this decision might uh, find its way into a higher court? It's going to be difficult uh, because of the way that the Alabama Supreme Court structured their decision. They based it almost entirely on the Alabama Constitution and Alabama state law, which theoretically limits the ability of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn them. The idea is, is that state Supreme Courts are supposed to be supreme in their own constitutional interpretation of their own laws. And so to that extent, it's going to be you know, legally, it's going to be a difficult appeal, and it, it may well be that the Supreme Court won't take the case at all because, uh, you know, it, it's, they, they feel that it's a jurisdictional problem. And so my guess is that the Alabama legislature is going to have to step in to, to do something about this. Uh, you know, one to two percent of births every year are done by IVF. And, and as you mentioned, John, um, you know, every IVF procedure generally involves implanting multiple embryos most of which are not viable. They don't make it in the end. And so if, if, this, if the Alabama Supreme Court decision stands, that means that IVF procedures in Alabama are going to be multiple murder procedures. And, you know, no, no one is going to offer these services, of course. Uh, and ultimately, of course, um, you know, IVF is very, very expensive. It's going to increase the cost of IVF. It's going to force people to go out of state. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to have all kinds of unintended consequences. Well, Megan, here's where I'm going to expose my ignorance of Iowa law. Is there anyone stopping someone from bringing a similar wrongful death case in this state? Uh, you know, so I, I don't know that we have um, some of the language at this moment <laughs> in the Iowa state constitution um, that would necessarily do this. And, you know, I think that all of these points about sort of the the repercussions are very clear. I think this is also one of those cases, though, where... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I take the point that it's going to be hard to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court, but even within the state of Alabama, um, the thing about IVF is that it is very expensive and it is often used by women who and couples struggling with fertility that might mean they're older and older parents are often older parents because they're highly educated, which also means they're wealthy. And so you have sort of like made angry <laughs> some of the most educated, wealthiest people in the state all of a sudden. 
And because those are the people who want and have access to this process and now may not have access to it anymore on an issue that is very emotional and very personal. Um, that is, you know, growing a family. And so I think that, um, even within the state of Alabama, I would expect there to be a lot of, you might not see like mass protests or things like that, but um, movement to challenge this um, in some way or another. And I, 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 again, I agree that I don't see a clear path for that. Um, But I think that the types of people who have access to this type of treatment um, to have children are the type of people who are most capable and have the most resources to fight this type of decision. And it's on something that's important to them. And so even in the past, you know, two days, it's not necessarily women in Alabama, but I've seen, and of course, political science professors are probably going to know more lawyers than the average person because of our own, the, the, our own majors and <laughs> education. Um, but lawyers who are women who have had children via IVF talking about what they're planning to do next um, and how they're planning to push back. And so um, I think this is a place where the courts have sort of overstepped their political capital um, and, and that it's also going to sort of damage the, the court's standing and, and trust people have in the court. And so I think there's other implications too. Um, and, and I think other states would be wise to probably sit back and, and watch how Alabama plays out before you go sort of trying to make the same decisions in, in your own state. Well, I have to lighten things up a bit before the end of the show. Last week tonight, host John Oliver uh, on a show Monday offered Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas $1 million a year and a, and a luxury motor coach to resign from his post. And the offer is related to a string of scandals involving Thomas, including his failure to disclose lavish trips and gifts from wealthy donors. And here's a bit of that segment. And if you're thinking, what will my friends say if I take this offer? Will they judge me as they sit in their boardrooms and mega yachts and Hitler shrines? Will they still treat me to luxury vacations and sing songs about me off their phones? Well, that's the beauty of friendship, Clarence. If they're real friends, they'll love you no matter what your job is. So I guess this might be the perfect way to find out who your real friends actually are. All right, Jonathan, a little bit of humor, uh, but it's pointing at a very real phenomenon. And and that, I I think, would be the erosion of trust in in America's highest court. Uh, Do you see it the same way? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in a large part, the court has brought it on itself. Um, you know, there was uh, e- even the ethics requirements that were just passed uh, just recently by the by the Roberts Court are essentially non-binding, and up to the justices to interpret themselves. Uh, the fundamental problem is that there's a you know nine nine people on the judiciary who are you know unelected. They're there for life, and. Um, I guess sometimes they feel entitled to do as they please. Uh, This is why the U.S. is an extreme outlier. Virtually every other country, there's almost, as far as I know, no other countries or very few other countries that have uh, justices with no term limits, that have people sit on the court forever. Uh, Every other democracy has decided that this is a bad idea. And often they're lengthy terms, you know, they'll be 18-year terms or 22-year terms or whatever, but eventually people have to get off the court. Um, And so... That's that's appealing. You know, the U.S. is a weird outlier here, and it's required uh, it's required that the justices act honestly and with integrity. And so, when they stop doing that, you know, when they start taking luxury motorhomes and trips to Bali on their friends' yachts and the like, then and, and and nothing can be done to prevent it, stop it, or otherwise censure it. Then, yeah, you know, it, it definitely uh, hurts hurts the court's case. Of course, this isn't the only thing that has hurt the court's credibility. Dobbs didn't help. 
um, as did you know other sort of ex- recent decisions that are seen as pretty extreme. So that you know the, this is the, the court has brought on problems of its own making. Megan, could you see uh, Justice Roberts and the rest of the court just uh, quietly sitting back and kind of waiting for all of this, uh, at, at least the scandal involving Clarence Thomas, to blow over? I mean, that's the benefit they have sort of with a lifetime appointment, right, is that you can wait and you don't have to sort of rehab. Uh, and I think the sort of the new ethics code was an attempt to rehab the image of the court a little bit. Um, but when you have when you don't have to worry about an upcoming election, you can just sort of wait for uh, the the storm to blow out and um, and sort of go on with your business as usual. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think if if I were Roberts, I guess that's what I would try to do, um, you know, and and try to see after that, once it sort of blows over, can you rebuild uh, the court's legitimacy a bit? But, you know, on the other hand, I think you're going to have folks like John Oliver who are not, uh, who who are sort of opinion leaders in the U.S., even though he's a comedian, there's lots of good informational content in his show, um, and he's not necessarily going to let it blow over. And so that's the the sort of trick that (laughs) Roberts, I guess, would have to watch out for is, um, are people opinion leader is going to keep Clarence Thomas and um, this sort of like range of issues as part of the issue agenda going forward. Well, as you mentioned, that's one of the benefits of a lifetime appointment. Thanks to our guest this hour, Megan Goldberg is Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College. Jonathan Hasid is Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, John. And today's show was produced by Danny Gear with technical support from Tony Sarabia. Thank you so much, Tony. On the other side of the glass, our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm John Wanamaker. You've been listening to River to River on IPR News. Thanks for joining us.